Zechariah chapter 8. We're going to be looking this morning at verses 18 through 23. This is the last of God's oracles in response to the query of the Bethelites at the beginning of chapter 7. One more time, the word of the Lord of hosts has come to Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 8, verse 18. And then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth, the fast of the fifth, the fast of the seventh, the fast of the tenth months will become joy, gladness, and cheerful feasts for the house of Judah. So love, truth, and peace. Thus says the Lord of hosts, It will yet be that peoples will come, even the inhabitants of many cities, And the inhabitants of one will go to another saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I will go also. And so many peoples and mighty nations will come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days, ten men from all the nations will grasp the garment of a Jew saying, Let us go with you. For we have heard that God is with you. And this is the living word of the living God. Would you bow with me? Our Father, we thank you for grace that we have just sung of. A grace that is received through your sovereign hand. We acknowledge that many in this world, many perhaps even within the church, Even to our own shame, we ourselves have at times fought against and been resistant to the truth of your sovereign hand. And we bow in humility before you because we recognize that there is only one God and it is you. There is no other. And because you are God, you must be sovereign. And because you are God, you're always gracious in your sovereignty. Might we rest in that? And might that sovereign hand give us the same hope that it gave the Israelites in the day of Zechariah when this prophecy was spoken? Certainly, it lifted them up and gave them confidence in you might it likewise give us confidence in you this day, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Regine and I enjoy watching home improvement shows. You know, those home restoration things where they walk into a dump that's worth about $10 and they walk out and it's worth a mansion, you know, it's a mansion worth a million and a half dollars and they spend $20,000 fixing it up. We like those shows. We like seeing something that is dilapidated and Unusable, made beautiful and functional. It's inspired us and given us ideas about things that we want to do in our own home. And it's just frankly inspiring to watch someone who is particularly skilled as some restorers are. But not all restorers are created equally. Consider the experience of the Church of St. Michael in Estella, Spain. A statue in the church depicting St. George charging a dragon had browned with age. And so they called in someone from their township, someone who was not quite a professional, to see if he might be able to restore it. This was the result. Doesn't look quite like the original. Social media blew up with laughter and mocking And it reminded many people on social media about another restoration done a few years earlier. This one at a church in Borgia in northeast Spain. The image is of Christ wearing his crown of thorns. After that image had deteriorated over a number of years, they too called in someone who was not quite a professional with this result. Social media mockingly called it the monkey Christ it might not have been fixed quite the way they wanted. 
One assumes that the restorers had good intentions. They just didn't have the skills to match the intentions. Aren't you glad that we live in a world that is broken, but will be restored by one who has perfect skill in that restoration process? One day, the restorer, our restorer, is coming And he has the infinite ability and power to fully accomplish his restorative saving plan for this world and for all the people in the world. That's the core message of what we find this morning in Zechariah chapter 8. This is, as I noted already, the final oracle from God in which he is responding to the Bethelites who complained about their fasts and they wanted to stop the fasting and eliminate the fasts. And God had four answers for them. And this final answer, he says this, God's people are strengthened to serve him now because of his restorative promises for the future. The world is broken. It was broken in the day of Zechariah. It was broken in the day of Adam. Immediately after his first sin. And it is still broken today. But that does not mean the people of God are to despair. Adam shouldn't despair. The day of, people of Zechariah's day shouldn't despair. And we should not despair. Because God has promised his people can be strong. And in this passage, verses 18 to 23, Zechariah reveals three fortifying promises for the future of his people. Three promises that would strengthen the people of Israel in that day. And three promises, frankly, that still give us hope and confidence and strength for our future as well. God's people are strengthened to serve Him now because of His restorative promises for the future. The first promise is this. God will turn fasting into feasting. I tried to come up with a creative title for this sermon. I read a number of commentaries and it seems like every preacher that has ever preached this passage has called his sermon from fasting to feasting. And it is with good reason that they do that. God will turn fasting into feasting. We've noted that in chapter 7, the Bethelites, people from Bethel, The leaders in Bethel came to Jerusalem, talked to the priests with this lament. Chapter 7, verse 3, Shall I weep in the fifth month and abstain as I have done these many years? We've been fasting for these 70 years, uh, not just in the fifth month, but we note later, and in this passage we see it, they've they've been fasting four months of every year for 70 years. That's a lot of fasting. It's a continual reminder of their weakness, their inability and their lament and their sorrow and their grief. And so they came to the priests and said, can we stop now? I mean, the, the temple's being rebuilt and it looks like everything's on the up and up and everything's moving forward. And, and can we stop this grieving process now? They asked the questions of the priests and God answers. That in itself had to be humbling. And in in these two chapters, chapter 7 and chapter 8, we have four occasions in which some variation of this phrase, then the word of the Lord came to Zechariah or came to me saying, we have four of those occurrences and so we have from those four occurrences, four declarations or four speeches or Four oracles, if you will, that come from the mouth of God. Four distinct sayings. In chapter 7, there are two sayings that are reproofs, corrections of the nation of Israel. In chapter 8, there are two more sayings, and both of those serve as encouragement. They serve as hopefulness. This is what's coming. This is God's promise. This is God's grace. In chapter 8, both of those are pointing to the coming of the millennial kingdom when the Davidic king will sit on his throne through the millennium and then on into eternity. And it is finally in this last oracle that the question asked by the Bethelites is actually addressed. Can we stop fasting? For the three other oracles, the issue of fasting is never directly addressed. And now it is finally addressed. As you think about things which are a struggle to you, Isn't it true that our ungodly emotions 
come from not thinking rightly about our circumstances. So we're tempted to be fearful or anxious or despondent or angry or lonely because we haven't rightly considered God's perspective of our situation, of our circumstances. And so the scriptures continually remind us that one of the ways to fight against that, the key way to fight against that is to have a mind renewal process. I've got to think differently if I'm going to act differently. And that is exactly what the Lord does for the Israelites in this section. He renews their minds by changing their thinking about how they were lamenting and how their minds should be renewed about the future. About a certain promise, a certain future that is promised by God. Let's consider verses 18 and 19 and see, first of all, how the Israelites lamented. It's noted for us in verse 19. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth and the fast of the fifth, the fast of the seventh and the fast of the tenth months. He acknowledges the fact that they've been They've been fasting not just one month, not just two months, but they've been fasting four months out of every year. Again, these 70 years, 280 months over the last 70 years that they've been fasting. Um, we'll take them in, or, in not in order, but not in uh, order that they're listed in the text, but kind of in chronological order about how the, the fast begun. Just by way of reminder, the fast of the 10th month marked the beginning of the siege of Babylon against Jerusalem somewhere around January of 588 B.C. So they lamented the fact that Babylon came and they were laying siege against uh, the city of Jerusalem. The fast of the fourth month was then uh, a fast of remembrance for the taking of Jerusalem about two years later in July of 586 B.C., actually about a year and a half later. Um, so that one lamented, not just did Babylon come, but now they have taken the city. The fast of the fifth month, one month later, was the most significant because it related to the taking of the temple and the destruction of the temple in August of 586 B.C. So chronologically, that happened the very next month. And so they began that fast again, fourth month and fifth month. There was another fast, the fast of the seventh month, and that remembered the assassination of Gedaliah. That happened about five years after the destruction of the temple. And what was significant about Gedaliah is he had been appointed by the Babylonians to be governor over Israel while Babylon had Israel in captivity. And they murdered him, which was an affront not just to him, obviously, and his family, but it was an affront to Babylon saying, we don't want your rulership. And it made things harsher and more difficult for them. And so they lamented that as well. What's notable about these fasts, and we've noted this several times, is that these fasts were voluntary. They were not demanded by God. They weren't demanded in the Old Testament, and they weren't demanded by subsequent revelation. They were all voluntary. It's what they decided themselves to do. They've been doing that for that 70 years. Perhaps they'd been doing it. We don't know what was motivating them exactly. Perhaps it was coming from a, a genuine sense of, of grief and sorrow over the things that happened. Given what God says in chapter 7, it seems that a major emphasis for the fasting was this is a way that we can make God indebted to us. This is a way that we can manipulate God, get God to do what we want, to make, to make God appeased so that He will grant us what we want and need. So that's what was going on all throughout those 70 years. And God does not directly answer their question about, can they stop fasting? But He does make a promise. Notice what God promised. He promised, verse 19, that their fasts, their grief, would become transformed. And so he says in verse 19, the fast of the fourth, the fast of the fifth, the fast of the seventh, the fast of the tenth months will become... Just stop there. What do you think the Israelites were anticipating when they heard this? More grief? Permanent? Unending? And God takes what we talked about last week, this redemptive reversal, and says, it's been going this way. Let me show you a different way. Let me show you what I can do. It will become joy, gladness, 
and cheerful, literally good feasts for the house of Judah. Absolutely turned on its head. The words for joy and gladness are used together here. They're used together 13 other times in the Old Testament. And from that, we think that they're probably just being used synonymously. So, so God, through Zechariah, is simply saying, you're going to be happy. And he uses all this happy language, joy and gladness and goodness and cheerfulness. It's all going to overflow into feasts, not fasts, but feasts that are happy and delightful. When we think about feasts, I don't know about you and your house, when we think about feasts, we think about things that are invariably happy. Family gathering together and food that's being cooked and all the things that are favorite and you walk in and the smells of the house and all the delight and cheerful voices and laughter. But sometimes, isn't it true, the nature of the gathering is not happy but sad. Think about the first Christmas without a loved one. Or the first birthday or first anniversary. Or think about gathering at a war memorial and the tones that are exhibited there. And the feasts of Israel sometimes had those tones. As the Israelites looked back, even at their feasts, they're looking back in sorrow, grief, and despair, despondency. And certainly that was what the fasts did for them. Why why were they led to despondency? Why were they led to despair? Because when they looked backward, they were looking at the pain, they were looking at the suffering, and they were looking at the griefs. And in Zechariah's day, for four months, every year, for 70 years, they've been looking backward at multiple losses. It is not reading too much into the text to suppose that they were feeding despondency And they were feeding despair and mistrust of God. It didn't honor God. It diminished God. It was despairing that said, there's no way out of this. What can God do? And God turns that around and says, I'm going to make something better than fasts. I'm going to make a time of perpetual gladness and perpetual feasts. Do not... Look backward to what has happened, but look forward to what is coming through my gracious hand. There's a reversal. I know what your past is, but there's a reversal that is coming. Says one commentator, whereas past memories of Jerusalem brought lament and pain, future memories of Zion will focus on the feasting within the city Look upon Zion, Jerusalem, the city of our festivals. Jerusalem isn't the place of destruction. Jerusalem is a place of joy, of festivals, of satisfaction, of contentment, of provision. And this is a reminder of what is ahead for the people of God. And what is ahead for the people of God, of course, is Messiah ruling in Jerusalem. Messiah on his Davidic throne. And the coming of the great king of Israel. We saw hints of this way back in chapter 2, verse 5. For I, declares the Lord, verse 5. For I, declares the Lord, will be a wall of fire around her, around Jerusalem. And I will be the glory in her midst. I'm coming back. The glory left in Ezekiel. The glory departed the temple. And the glory's coming back. And we've seen that all through chapter 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts, 8-2, verse 3, I will return to Zion and I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth and the mountain of the Lord of hosts will be called the holy mountain. And on and on it goes through this chapter. The Messiah is coming. And what you're thinking about now is not what the end, be, end will be. The past does not determine the future. There's hope. So we've seen in verse 18 and 19 how the Israelites lamented and what God promised. Notice also that because of the coming of the kingdom, God calls Israel to genuine faith. Notice the last phrase in verse 19. 
there is coming joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. So, because of that, conclusion, love, truth, and peace. And this is what Israel is to do because of God's revelation. They are to love, truth, and peace. That's both a correction and an encouragement. And now think about what it was that they were loving. Previously, what did they love? They loved their fasts. Why? Because it was their means of commending themselves to God. God, look at us and look at how good we are. Look at what we've accomplished. You owe us. That's what they loved. And he says, stop loving your ritual, stop loving your fasting, and start loving that which makes for truth and peace. Really, it's, call, it, it, it's a call to genuine faith. Stop leaning on yourselves for your own righteousness and your own position and start leaning on someone else who can give you genuine righteousness that we know is going to come through the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And notice this as well. Don't just love truth and peace in general, but when he says, so love truth and peace, he actually says, so love the truth and the peace. In other words, love genuine truth, love genuine peace, the kind of peace that will characterize God's kingdom. And he's talked about that previously. We've already seen it. Chapter 8, verse 3, right? He's coming to the city of truth and the holy mountain. Verse 8, I will bring them back and they will live in the midst of Jerusalem and they will be my people and I will be their God, what? In truth and righteousness. So I'm coming with genuine truth, with genuine righteousness. We see those two themes about truth, righteousness, and then the attendant peace running all throughout this chapter. And what's he calling them to do? What they should do then in the future they should also do now. Righteous living is not just, living by faith is not just something for the future and for eternity. Righteous living, living by faith is for now. What we will do in glory, 2 Corinthians 5, 9, what we will do in glory, what our desire will be in glory should inform our desire now. And that's exactly what God is calling the Israelites to do here as well. Notice this also. He says, so love truth and peace. That's really the emphasis here. Not just truth and peace, but loving it. God is not honored by loving ritual activities without a heart of devotion for Him. And He's calling them not to love their ritual, but to love Him and His righteousness, and His provision. And then with that, it's a reminder that He will transform every grief into joy. Do you all believe that? Every grief will be turned to joy. That was true for Israel, and it's true for us. We can love Him Because we can trust Him to take through His magnanimous promises to us our losses and turn them into joys. So that when we get to eternity, we will have lost nothing. He will repay. Many of you know the name William Carey. He was a missionary to India, I believe a century and a half ago. Translated the Bible into Hindi. Planted churches there that are still in existence today. He is considered to be the founder of the modern missionary movement. He is exalted in all kinds of places. We forget though, in looking back at what he accomplished, the hardship through which he went to bring that about. He was well acquainted with sorrow. Three of his children died in childhood. The death of his third child that happened while they were in India led to his wife's quote-unquote insanity from which she never recovered. He ultimately outlived both her and his second wife. And after working for 20 years on the translation of the Bible into Hindi, All of the work burned up in one night when all the pages and all the work and all the books that he had stored for 20 years of work went up in flames. He had to start 
completely over from page one. What did he think? Quote, God's judgment of what things are good frequently differs from ours. For he often bestows those external, apparently good things on his enemies and visits his saints with poverty, disappointment, afflictions, contempt, and many other things supposed to us to be evil. He, however, knows these external evils to be necessary to the substantial good of his servants. And were not this the case, they would not be exercised under them. For he does not willingly or nor he does not willingly afflict nor grieve the children of men. I rejoice that you have been both you have both been enabled to commit your ways to the Lord. Listen, persevere in that cause, and all will be well. The joy of the Lord will be your strength. Yeah, life is lamentable, but God has promised, have faith and confidence in Him, and all will be well. The fasts will become feasts. There's a second promise that He makes in this passage. It's verses 20 to 22. And that is that God will turn enemies into friends. This is, this is astounding. There is in these verses essentially three, excuse me, essentially one promise, but it's told from three different vantage points, three different perspectives. Let's look at it in that way. First, I want you to see the promise of turning enemies into friends from God's perspective. That's verse 20. Notice again, Thus says the Lord of hosts. Eighteen times that, that title for God is used in this passage. The Lord of hosts. It, it refers to His sovereignty, His power, His authority. He is over all people in every realm, in the heavens and on earth and under the earth, everywhere. All men are in submission to Him. And that power is being manifested now in bringing the nations to Israel for salvation. Notice what he says, verse 20. Thus says the Lord of hosts, it will yet be that the peoples will come to Jerusalem, even the inhabitants of many cities. This is, this is exactly what God had promised through Moses way back in Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4 it actually starts at the beginning of the chapter, but let me pick up in verse 5. God says through Moses, See, I have taught you commandments and just judgments just as the Lord my God commanded you that you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. Watch this. So keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say... Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as is the Lord our God whenever we call on Him? Or what great nation is there that has statutes and judgments as righteous as this whole law which I am settling before you today? In other words, the nations will look at you and your obedience and say, what God is like this God of this people? Let's go. And that is exactly what will happen. The nations will be drawn to God in faith. We saw that, a hint of that, what is going to be exposed through the rest of the book. Way back in chapter 2, verse 11, many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day and they will become my people and then I will dwell in your midst, and then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. We, we see that, that God, God is saving, bringing, planning, and will ultimately fulfill the promise of bringing the nations to Himself in saving faith. We, we see that in Isaiah chapter 6. Arise, shine. Excuse me, I said 6, 60. Isaiah 60 verse 1. Arise, shine, for your light has come. 
And the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth and deep darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you and his glory will appear upon you. And nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. You be obedient and you follow me and you will be an attraction to the nations and they will come. And that's the very thing that we read about earlier in chapter 66. Rejoice. And be glad forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. Yeah, that's 65. That's a good verse too, but that's not the one I wanted. I knew that didn't sound quite right. Um, chapter 66, verse 18. I know their works and their thoughts and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues and they will come And they will see my glory. They're coming. Not just the nations. And not just the people. But notice what God says in verse 20. It will be that the peoples will come. The inhabitants of many cities. And he means by that all of the places of worldwide power and authority would stream to Israel. And how would they come? They would come in in dependence and need and submission and say, we don't know, will you tell us, will you save us? Cities in that day like Babylon and Nineveh and Noph or Memphis, Egypt and Damascus and Alexandria and Rome are going to come and be attracted by the gospel in the nation of Israel and say, will you save us? And cities today like Beirut and Moscow and Cairo and Baghdad and Tehran and Bahrain and Washington, D.C. will come, will flock to Israel in need, independence and hope. They will come not just in friendship, and isn't that a new idea? They will not just come in friendship, but they will come in submission for salvation. Friends and enemies alike, coming to Jerusalem for God's salvation. And all those places that have in the past and even today have sought to subjugate Israel with a sword will come without a sword seeking the salvation that is in the land of Israel through the Messiah that is ruling on his throne. Brothers and sisters, isn't that an astounding day? And isn't that exactly... What God does, God takes enemies and makes them his friends. And isn't that what he did for you? You who were opposed to him, you who hated him, you were contrary to him, you were resistant to him, you were rebellious against him. And he made you his friend. That is his grace. God will turn enemies into friends. That's the promise from God's perspective. Let's notice also the promise from the nation's perspective. Again, verse 21, God is still speaking, but what he is speaking is what the nations are going to say on that day. The inhabitants will go to one another. The inhabitants of one will go to another. So the inhabitants of all these cities and all of these nations will go to one another and say, let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord. Let us go at once there's urgency, there's necessity, there's a hurry, there's, a, there's an enticement to salvation, a desire and a longing for salvation. we got to go now for salvation. And how do we know that they're going for salvation? Look at what they will say to one another. Again, verse 21, let us go at once now urgently to entreat the favor of the Lord. They're looking for grace. They're not just coming to Israel. They're not just going on a trip. And I'm all for taking trips to Israel. I've been there and I I love to go. That's great. They're not going on a vacation. They're coming for for salvation. This is an evangelistic rally that's going to supersede any other kind of evangelistic rally or revival the world has ever seen. For the first time in history, There will be people coming, seeking God. Romans 3 tells us there's none who seeks, 
There's none who looks. Nobody wants God. In that day, they will. They come appealing for grace. Notably, that little phrase in the middle of the verse there, they go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord, that appeal for grace. It's not the first time that that phrase is used in this section. We saw it in chapter 7, verse 2. Now the town of Bethel and said Sherazer and Regamelech and their men to seek the favor of the Lord. How did they come? They came saying, oh, we've been doing all these rituals. God, will you be gracious to us because you owe us. In that day, people won't come trying to manipulate God, but they will come in genuine dependence, appealing for the grace and favor of God. They will not just seek the favor of the Lord. Notice this as well, verse 21, and to seek the Lord of hosts, to seek God, to seek Him, is to make Him the object of their desires. Why do people appeal to the grace of God? Because they realize they're sinners and they have no ability to commend themselves to God. They have nothing. What else are they going to do? All they can do is appeal for grace and mercy. And again, notice, notice the excitement. Notice the urgency. So one is saying, let's entreat the favor of the Lord. Would you come with me? Would you come with me? I'm going too. And again, there's this, this urgency and anticipation and joy. Now this, this, is, this is an astounding, remarkable salvation of God that will come in the last days. But isn't it true that every gift of salvation is the same kind of salvation that is astounding, perplexing, amazing? Every kind of salvation is a who would have thought that person would get in? Noah, a pagan, worshiping man in Babylon. And God says, you're mine. And Noah, and Lot, and Lot is called righteous by Peter. He's righteous Lot. And Peter, and Paul, and Onesimus, the runaway slave, and Martin Luther, and you, and me. It's, it's astounding what God will do to save us. My friend, if you are here today and you are no, not a believer in Jesus Christ, I want you to hear loud and clear that there is no sin that you've committed that God cannot and will not forgive if you ask Him. It's all washable. Yeah, are you His enemy? Yes. Yes. But He makes enemies friends. Not just friends, sons. Adopted into His heavenly family and given all the rights and privileges of heaven. Now, you can't come with a sin. You can't come holding on to it and say, I want to keep this too. No, you've got to let it go. But He will wash it. He will cleanse it. He will free you from it. He will free you from the penalty that that sin deserves. And He will free you from the bondage in which that sin is keeping you. And give you liberty and joy. You just got to ask, will you save me? I want to follow you. It's as simple as that. God will turn enemies into friends. Notice the promise from God's perspective, the promise from the nation's perspective. Now notice, lastly, the promise from Israel's perspective. That's verse 22. Zechariah is observing what's going on. Again, God is still speaking, but this is essentially Zechariah's observation of what's going on as he envisions and sees these people coming to Jerusalem for salvation. Verse 22, so many peoples... And mighty nations will come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem. The word peoples refers to tribal relationships. It's not nations, but it's people groups. It's talking about people groups that transcend the national borders. The references to territories and regions. And so in using that word, he's helping us to understand the universality of the salvation that is coming. 
Every place in the world is a place where people will be drawn to the salvation of God. We saw that in Isaiah chapter 45 earlier this morning. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other. I've sworn by myself the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back that to me every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance and they will say of me, only in the Lord are righteousness and strength, end quote. Only Him. And people from all over the world are going to come. And that's what Zechariah is seeing. They're coming from all of these different places. And not just many peoples are coming, but mighty nations are coming. Every nation will be represented And notice that it is the mighty nations. It's the strongest of nations. And the strongest of nations are coming saying, we don't have what we need. We're coming to you for salvation. And notice where they are going. They will come to seek the Lord of hosts. Side note. When you're in front of someone in a position of power, do you come with boldness or do you come with meekness? You stand before a judge for something as simple as a traffic ticket. And do you come arrogantly or do you come in humility? When you stand before the Lord of hosts, these are coming in humility. But notice as well, they're coming to the Lord of hosts, the one who is omnipotent and powerful and authoritative and sovereign over everything, they are drawn to Him. And they come to Him in Jerusalem. The great city Jerusalem is not just the center of Israel, but friends, it is the center of the world. And the King of glory is enthroned there. And that is the one whom they are coming to see Says one commentator, Christ's earthly reign will include the most extensive corporate worship in human history. And that's what's going on in verse 22. They are coming and they are seeking the Lord of hosts again to entreat the favor of the Lord. They're still looking for God's grace. They come seeking grace and finding grace. A prophecy had to astound and shock the nation. Nations that had always been opposed to Israel are now coming to Israel not to defeat it, but to seek the salvation that's found there in the king that is enthroned there. Why? Because it's always by grace. It's always by grace. It was by grace then... It is grace today and it will be grace in that future kingdom. I want you to notice one final promise that is made. It's in verse 23. God will turn rebels into worshipers. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Again, the 18th time that phrase is used in this chapter. Thus says the Lord of hosts. In those days, 10 men from all the nations will grasp the garment of a Jew saying, let us go with you. Ten men, I don't think is an exact number. It just means the Jews will be significantly outnumbered by the Gentiles in Jerusalem, but they won't be coming with swords. They'll come begging. Not just grasping the garment, but, but, but the sense is they're grasping at the hem of the garment. I'm not a, I'm not a, sewing person but i think i know enough about clothing to know where's the hem it's at the bottom they're on the ground grasping pegging could you share with us the grace that is of god so that we can be helped they grasp the hem of the garment begging for salvation and the specific request is We want to go with you because we have heard that God is with you. This is the fulfillment of the promise that God talks about in Philippians chapter 2. Every knee will bow, those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
they're all going to say, we know that Christ is King. And they, the nations, will have found the Savior for whom they have been groping, and both Gentiles and Israel will be saved. And this, friends, is the final fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise when God says, I'm going to make you a blessing to the world, to the nations. And the blessing is that it will be in Jerusalem through Israel that the gospel goes forth and the nations and Gentiles are saved. Notice this as well. That little word nations, some of you may have a footnote in your Bible. It's literally the word tongues or languages. It's the same word that's used back in Genesis chapter 11 where God broke up the one people into multiple peoples by giving them lots of languages. And so they dispersed so they wouldn't build the Tower of Babel. And now at the end of the time, the nations are being brought back. The, 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 the languages, the tongues are being brought back into one kingdom again, this time to worship the one true God. And notice again, the timing of these events, verse 23, thus says the Lord of hosts in those days. He's not looking backward. He's not even looking in the contemporary time in which Zechariah and Haggai were ministering. He's looking to a future day in those days. He's looking to the millennial kingdom. He's looking to that time when God will establish himself in Christ on the Davidic throne and reign for a thousand years in Israel. That phrase, in those days, is a common phrase among the prophets. It's only used here by Zechariah, but it's commonly used by the other prophets. Listen to, Zach, excuse me, listen to Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 14. Behold, days are coming declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah, in those days, that's the phrase, in those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth and he will execute justice and righteousness on the earth. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell in safety. And this is the name by which she will be called the Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. This is the return of the king to assume his throne in the kingdom and then into eternity. Brothers and sisters, our common consolation is Christ is in his throne, on, on his throne in heaven, ruling and reigning now. This is a consolation that he will rule and reign on earth as well. And it's coming soon. The world has been opposed to God since Genesis chapter 3 and the introduction of sin. And in that day, all that opposition will be reversed. As you read these verses, I don't know about you, but I couldn't help thinking all week about passages like Revelation chapter 5. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. The reality is God is bringing the nations to himself. He's accomplishing it through the nation of Israel. He will bring about his final salvation. There is no mistake in this restoration process. Yeah, I get it. It's taken time. But God is not left short-handed. He knows what he's doing. He'll bring it about at just the right time. His people Israel will be preserved and grace will be extended to the nations as well. So, let us meditate on the joyful future and not the sorrowful past. Like Israel, let's stop looking to the past and saying, woe is me, and start anticipating the future and the glorious hope of what Christ will bring. Let us also not be overwhelmed Excuse me, let us be overwhelmed by the favor and grace of the Lord 
that saves sinners. He will save them then. He saves them now. He saved you. Let us not stop being overwhelmed by that grace. Let us do in this day today what we will do in that day. And what we will do in that day is we will be obedient to the Lord. We will seek His truth and His peace and His righteousness. Let that be our desire today as well. Let us anticipate and work for the salvation of the nations. One day there's going to be a stream of people to Israel. Let's work for that now. That's what it's going to be at the end. Let's start working on that now. And let us not be anxious for today or tomorrow because the Lord is almighty. His sovereign power holds all things and all salvation in His hand. He will keep and preserve Israel and He will keep and preserve us. He will turn fasting to feasting. Father, thank You for these reminders. Thank you for your provision of such a great Savior. Thank you for the means by which you have accomplished this salvation in Jesus Christ. And thank you that it will culminate. We are not left defenseless, we're not left broken, but everything in this world that appears broken will be restored, will be fixed, and will come to the end that you have designed for all of eternity. And so we thank you for these things. We trust you. And now as we come to the table of communion, we come looking back not back to our sorrows and not back to our pains, but looking back to the sorrow of Christ and the pain of Christ and the sufficiency of Christ and the fullness of His atonement for our sin. And we look forward to glory when we will eat this meal with Him as His fully redeemed children. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.